pretty much every year at the end of the year, I take a break from whatever I'm preaching, and I use the opportunity to put together a couple of messages that I want to do that I've been thinking about throughout the year, and usually along the lines of some sort of shepherding on a particular topic. This coming year of 2021, I think this is obvious that we need to do this, our church will be focused pretty intently on the theme of the church, the church of Jesus Christ. 2020 has been the most challenging year to the church, to our ecclesiology in any number of years. There has been a resurgence now of a, an understanding that the church is central, that the church is not the same as a bar or a restaurant or a gym, that the church is a magnificently supernatural organism. It is the very body of Christ. And so in 2021, we're not just going to be relieved that 2020 is over. We're taking a stand, and we're going to say that the church is essential. And we will be looking at that throughout the year. Um, In our celebration banquet, Steadfast Bible Conference, I'm going to be preaching through 1 Timothy, the rest of it, this year which is certainly a a church-focused book. But today I want to start where the church really has to start. I want to work our way into this beginning point, which I'll I'll take this morning and next Sunday to explore, and that is Acts chapter 2. As the Lord Jesus promised, after he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. At the end of Acts 1, the 11 remaining apostles, Judas is now dead. They have received now the, the 12th apostle, Matthias, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The twelve are gathered. The pronoun they has the antecedent of Matthias and the other eleven apostles from chapter 1, verse 26. So they are the twelve. In verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, you know the rest of the story. Jews from all over the world are visiting here in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they come together at the sound of this mighty rushing wind. And to their amazement, they hear the apostles speaking the native languages of all the countries from which these Jews have come. And these languages are listed here, beginning in verse 9. And what were the apostles proclaiming? Chapter 2, verse 11, the mighty works of God. They were proclaiming his works. And everyone is amazed, they're perplexed, but a few mocked and said, oh, these guys are drunk. They're drunk with new wine. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, was this the full sermon that Peter preached? Probably not. Verse 40 says, With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort him. The inspired text of this particular sermon is most likely shortened, the shortened version of his actual sermon, but the very meat, the very essence of what God would say to us as the reader is word for word. These are the exact words that Peter spoke. This is just the abridged version. And what was the result of this sermon by Peter? Acts 2 verse 42. And they, who's they, the 3,000 souls, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, why is this sermon so, so very significant? This is the first Christian sermon ever. The first of countless millions, perhaps billions, that have been preached since then. Now, this isn't the first sermon of all time. 
Israel was very familiar with preaching. It was part of their worship. But for our purposes, this is the first sermon given in the era of the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's monumental. It's epic. And Peter sets the bar high, very high, right off the top. Now, the main message of this sermon is very clear. Peter is exalting Christ as the reason for the phenomenon that the people are witnessing. The high point of the message comes in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we understand that that's the main point of this text. That's what Peter's trying to get across. But what I'd like to do this morning and next week is I'd like to do somewhat of a behind-the-scenes look at this sermon and show you kind of what's underneath it. I'd like to use Peter's sermon here to give you what we might call a listener's guide to preaching. A listener's guide to preaching. Because a, a person just standing up in front of people in a building that somebody has labeled a church, that doesn't mean preaching is happening. There are elements which you should expect, elements which you should be looking for, because these are the elements which will continue to change your life and make you more like Christ. Now, this is sort of like a husband going to his wife and saying, I'd like to give you 10 things I could be doing better. Hey, we wouldn't do that in a million years, right? Well, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to be doing this maybe to my own detriment, but I want your expectations of preaching to be high. I want them as high as possible it's important to me that for the rest of your life, whatever church you find yourself in, whatever city the Lord brings you to, your understanding of preaching is informed and educated. Not only that, I want you to remain vigilant. I want you to remain on the alert. And we'll talk about that at the very end of our time today. I want you to stay sharp because those who are sometimes well-fed spiritually can become dull Their hearts close down and we just put layers of more truth over a closed heart thinking that the preaching is doing its work when it's not. Now, if you've been at Grace for any amount of time, maybe you've picked up on this, maybe not. I'm going to give you one of my secrets. Every year, I do one or two messages on preaching. Every single year, I see some heads nodding. You've picked up on it already. Because I want you to understand this is the pinnacle of what we do. And so we're, we're going to try and hit this from various angles every year. I want to give you five reasons that we need to preach about preaching. The first reason is that preaching is the central activity of the church. It is the central activity of the church. Paul told Timothy in no uncertain terms in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. And in fact, he puts him under an oath that he would preach the word. Without preaching the truth of Scripture, the church is now filled with sheep who don't know what to do, who don't know how to relate to their God. Without preaching, the gospel message becomes obscured. It becomes replaced with everything from emotionalism to legalism. And so the message slowly, over time, gets replaced. Preaching is the central activity of the church. One of the men who discipled me said, and I'll never forget this, he said that all ministry flows downhill from the pulpit. That's where it starts. It's the second reason we should preach on preaching. Preaching is the means to worship. Preaching is the means to worship. Now, what do we mean by this? Why is preaching at the center of our worship? Why is it the core? Well, because without preaching, you wouldn't know the God that you are supposing to worship. And the less you know God, the less you're worshiping God as he is. And now you're worshiping a false God that you have conceptualized in your mind. Does that make sense? 
If you don't know God, how can you worship Him? Knowing God is the very first act of worship and preaching that continually highlights God and His character and His attributes and His holiness and His glory. That's what engenders prayer and singing and fellowship and evangelism. All those other aspects of worship. It all flows from truth. You shut the spigot off on truth and you shut the spigot off on worship. It's the third reason we should preach on preaching. Preaching is the means to shepherding God's people. Preaching is the means to shepherding God's people. You know this, I didn't say, and this is a change for me, I didn't say the primary means, it is the means. And somebody would say, well, what about counseling? All counseling is is one-on-one preaching. That's what it ought to be. Preaching is the means to shepherding God's people. Preaching is the means to your obedience. Why? Because you have a human representative of God looking you in the eye, expecting you to obey your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why, while we love all of you who are live streaming and some of you who have to for various health reasons, we understand that I can't reach into the camera and get you eyeball to eyeball. All you have to do is just click me off, right? But you can't do that. If you leave now, everybody knows it and they're all looking. It is eyeball to eyeball accountability to shepherd you. That's why we gather. That's why we're the ecclesia, the assembly. It is the means of shepherding that Jesus used far above all others. Preaching to the many and the many then choose to their own blessing or to their own detriment whether to follow the word of God or not. And at that point, it becomes your choice. There's a fourth reason that we should preach on preaching. Preaching is the premier means of evangelism. Preaching is the premier means of evangelism. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that his preaching should include doing the work of an evangelist in, in, chapter, in verse 5. The core, truly biblical definition of a missionary, as you study the book of Acts, In the New Testament, the core, truly biblical definition of a missionary is one who plants, what? Churches. And what happens in churches? Preaching happens. Historically, the church and the preached word has been the premier means by which God has built his church. I'll put it this way. Ephesians 4.16 says that something makes the body of Christ grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is that something? Verse 11, he gave shepherds to the church, verse 15, to speak the truth in love. This has always been the method. This has always been the means that the gospel has been spread. And we praise God for every other means of evangelism that we can possibly think of. We want to be creative. We want to go door to door. We want to hand out tracts. We want to be with, with kids and, and play basketball with them in the park and share the gospel with them and all of those things. But you will not find any in 2,000 years of church history, any major revival that happens outside the preached word in the church. That has always been the case. You've never heard of the great basketball revival. That's never happened. One more reason that we should preach on preaching. Preaching is the chief responsibility of the pastor. It's the chief responsibility of the pastor. We have other responsibilities, but there really isn't a close second with the exception of prayer, and those two really go together. Acts chapter 6 provides the first model for this responsibility. Seven faithful men 
were chosen to relieve the apostles of other ministry duties so that they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. 1 Timothy 5.17 identifies elders who are to labor. We get our English word copious, copious labor. They're to labor. And in fact, in Greek, it's a present active participle. They are continuously laboring in what? In preaching and teaching. It, it is a never-ending cycle. In seminary, they say Sunday's coming like a freight train. And it's true. You finish Sunday. You know what I do every Monday morning? I open my Bible and I start studying. And technically, it's my day off, but I get up really early and I pretend it's not for a while. You want to know why? Because I can't wait. I can't wait. And then we do it again and again and again. It is the premier activity of the preacher. It is the premier responsibility In certain parts of the world now, mostly in our country, the word preacher has become a denigrating insult, hasn't it? Oh, he's just a, what, preacher. I would say the word preacher is the most honored word you can possibly have. And as the preaching pastor here at Grace, I am burdened that you love and you cherish the preached word. Uh, One of you the other day uh, said, hey, I was listening to... uh, uh, an R.C. Sproul recording, and it's like, oh, well, sorry, I listen to you too. It's like, no, I'm excited to know you're listening to R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and John Piper and Steve Lawson. I want you to listen to these men. Makes my job easier. Absolutely makes it easier. Cherish and love the preached word. So what I'd like to do, now that we have kind of a foundation, I want to deconstruct Peter's sermon as a listener's guide to preaching what you should be listening for. And we'll just walk through part of Peter's sermon this morning. We'll finish it next Sunday morning. What should preaching consist of? What should you be listening for? Maybe not all at once, but overall, what should be feeding your soul? What should be sanctifying your life? And since we're using the inspired example of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, what we'll do is just begin the sentence, Peter-like preaching includes. Peter-like preaching includes. I'm going to do eight for you this morning, and I've got eight more for next week. So first, Peter-like preaching includes a communication that is heightened. A communication that is heightened. If you want to save a little time, you can put 16 letter C's all down your notes. Peter-like preaching includes a communication that is heightened. Verse 14 Luke, the author of the book of Acts, records that Peter, the leader among leaders of the apostles, he stood with the other apostles, and it says, he lifted up his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus taught many, many thousands of people from a small mountaintop in Galilee, Sermon on the Mount. We can assume that he had to elevate his voice somewhat, but That's not the emphasis as Jesus began preaching in Matthew 5. But here in Acts 2, we see that thousands are gathered before Peter. It would be obvious to think that just because of the sheer numbers, Peter would need to elevate the volume of his voice. He would need to speak more loudly. So why does Luke make certain to include this little detail, an important part of setting the stage that Peter lifted up his voice? Why is that here? Well, first of all, I think it's significant that it's here in the very first Christian sermon. It sets the tone. It sets the stage for what's important. There's an emphasis on the important, on the intensity of what's about to be said. 
already preaching right from the get-go is held up as something that's holy, that is divine, that is heavenly. This verb, lifted up, it certainly has a volume aspect to it. Peter was speaking more loudly than his normal voice. And if you know the character of Peter at all through Scripture, we can't imagine him with a soft, velvety voice, right? But it's much more than volume. There's an attitude. There's a mindset. There's a manner. There's a posture. There's a bearing that lifted up speaks of. What is this attitude? What is this mindset, this posture, this bearing, this manner? Well, there's three ways to understand this. All from this verb, lifted up. The first way to understand the attitude and the mindset, it's a verb that means to cry out. It's a verb that means to cry out. And it's not just speaking of volume. There's a, there's a desperation. There's a pleading. There's a completely unveiled an undisguised attempt to capture the attention of the listener. There's no begging. Peter's not, excuse me, everyone, do you think you could listen? No. He lifted up his voice. And he essentially begins in his manner by crying out. There's a second way to understand this attitude and mindset. mindset. It's a verb that means to stir up. It means to stir up. To lift up its speech with heavenly content that's meant to elevate your mind and open your heart and to stir up your affections. It's to give the message that something beyond normal conversation is happening here. This can stir you up toward glorious thoughts of God. It can stir you up toward conviction of sin. It can stir you up. It can bother you. It can inspire you, but it should be something that stirs you up. There's something holy, there's something divine, something weighty, something with gravitas, something with import that's happening. It is a holy act. The attitude, the mindset, the posture, the bearing, the manner is to cry out. It is to stir up. There's one more way to understand this attitude and mindset. It's a verb that means to rise up against. To rise up against. It is in the Christian sermon and the Christian sermon alone that error and falsehood are challenged and they're destroyed. That truth is lifted up as the weapon against darkness and against spiritual ignorance. In fact, Peter here immediately denies the mocking of those saying the apostles were, that they're speaking in other languages was just somehow drunkenness. And he destroys that argument with truth from Scripture, beginning in verse 17. This is what preaching is meant to do. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, very often taken out of context. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm going to stop right there. This is where it's taken out of the context. You've heard this verse quoted a thousand times. Well, we need to take every thought captive. Well, What it's often used as is that I need to take my own thoughts captive. Good application, wrong text. Use Philippians 4 verse 8 to think on these things, to take your own thoughts captive. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 is not speaking of taking your own thoughts captive. It's speaking of me taking your thoughts captive and taking the wrong ones and destroying them and taking right ones and placing them in your mind. You've never heard Joel Osteen say, good morning, I'm here to destroy all your arguments today. No, that's what the word of God is supposed to do. The attitude, the mindset, the posture, the bearing, the manner, 
that lifted up includes it's crying out, it's stirring up, it's rising up against that which is false. There are basically two types of churches. Those who try to feed the sheep and those who try to please potential sheep. That's really it. You can divide them all down the line. Those who try to feed the sheep and those who try to please potential sheep. If your primary concern is trying to please potential, potential sheep to give the visiting unbeliever some sort of moral lesson or Christianity light message to entice them slowly towards Christ, which never works, by the way, then your preaching will follow the trend that's so popular today of trying to achieve a very important goal. And that goal is to remove intensity and to have the listener be as relaxed and calm as possible. Now listen, we certainly want all who hear the preached word to be loved and cherished as they visit our church. We desire that. But the last thing I want any of you when I'm preaching is relaxed. I don't want you calm. Why would you not be intense about truths that are divine? You're not going to the spa to hear the sounds of a waterfall in the background. You're coming to hear God speak. This is, these are words of life, words of death. Do you understand that some of you right now may be hearing the last gospel presentation you ever have the opportunity to hear? This is heaven and hell. Dr. Steve Lawson, I love him. One of my mentors, he famously said that effective preaching is meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Let me ask you a question. When Jeremiah 1 verse 10 says that the word of God in the mouth of the preacher is to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, does that sound like inducing a state of calm and relaxation? The only calm I want for you when you're listening to preaching is the calm of knowing you are engaged in the most important act on planet Earth at this moment. That calm alone. Preaching should engage you. It should bother you. It should create a heightened awareness of your own sin, your own needs, your own dependence upon the Lord. The truths of God should cry out in your heart. They should stir up your mind and they should rise up against all that would distract you. All that would make you deny your faith in the great and mighty God that we serve. Just 15 more. Peter-like preaching includes a communication that is heightened. Second, Peter-like preaching includes a command that is direct. A command that is direct. Verse 14 again, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. There's two imperatives in the row, two commands. Let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. This is a colloquialism. It just means listen up. This second imperative, the second command is a verb form, which means listen for your own benefit. Listen for yourselves. This isn't the last time he gives a command to listen. Partway through his message, look with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. He doesn't just do this in his introduction. He's a third of the way through. And he says, hey, listen. But right here at the beginning, Peter's first goal is to contradict the mockers who thought the apostles miraculously speaking in other languages were simply drunk. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. So he says they're not drunk. We just woke up. 
Now, I have to do a little side note here because not everybody at Grace has full understanding of this yet, so I need to just kind of take a side note. The sign gifts, the miraculous spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, in Greek it just means other human languages, it's all it is. The gift of healing and other miracles and the gift of prophecy, that is receiving direct information from God, these had a specific purpose. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. How? While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What did these miraculous gifts do? They attested to the authenticity of the gospel message. That it wasn't just some guy walking in saying, you should follow Jesus. It was a guy walking in saying, you should follow Jesus. And here, let me heal the sick and raise the dead and speak to you in a language you've never heard before from my mouth. And so it fulfilled a purpose. Key phrase, fulfilled. Early in his ministry, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And if you do a very careful, studied, and objective analysis of what is happening, what is taught, what is practiced in the charismatic church today, it bears no resemblance whatsoever to what was happening legitimately in the early first century church to confirm the gospel. What do we have now that makes those gifts unnecessary? We have a complete Bible. And until you can tell me how we improve on this, we don't need those gifts. We have all the verification we need. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The word of Christ. But can you see how effective the gift of tongues was here in this context? Peter, immediately after having been proclaiming the gospel in other languages miraculously, he had an audience of thousands and 3,000 of them would come to saving faith that very day. And so it's in this context that Peter gives Those three commands, let this be known to you. Verse 14, give ear to my words. Verse 14, and hear these words. Verse 22. Listen, this is is a far cry from the philosophy of preaching which says that the listener, you, in the congregation has condescended to give a little time and some attention and not to sleep for the entire sermon. And give some attention to the poor preacher that's just hoping that someone will pay attention. No. The preached word of God asserts authority and it demands that you listen. This is why we say get a good night's rest on Saturday because I'm going to be in your face on Sunday. And that's hard to do when you're sleepy. This concept has been so lost thanks to liberalism, thanks to the seeker-sensitive movement, the church growth model that says that you are the consumer. God is the consumer and we preach to his glory that we might honor him the apostle paul gave to pastor titus i read this earlier what amounts to a preaching guide in titus chapter 2 and the end of this preaching guide is stunning it's shocking titus 2 15 declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you this has tremendous implications This means that in the church of Jesus Christ, in the local church, there is not to be one person who has a whatever attitude. Not one. Or less than all in attitude when it comes to the preached word of God. 
And in that same vein, not only does Peter-like preaching include a command that is direct, we can look at the third element. Peter-like preaching includes a confrontation that is personal. A confrontation that is personal. I've gotten this question so many times as a pastor, I mean, probably in the top three questions I've ever been asked. And so I'm just going to answer it for all of you right now. Let's get one thing clear. If you're tempted to ask the question, were you preaching to me? The answer is always yes. Every single time. Why else would you be here? You don't go to a restaurant and they serve you food. I'm sorry, were you bringing this to me? The question, were you preaching to me, is ever only asked, I believe, with one of two attitudes. It's asked with an attitude either of humble thankfulness that the word of God is doing its work, or it's asked with an arrogant attitude, how dare you? which is generally indicative of an unbeliever. Someone who thinks himself above the conviction of the preached word. If you're above the conviction of the preached word, why are you here? The only other reason I can think of is to put on a show. That I'm showing you something. You know that in uh, preaching circles, there are two words that we're taught to avoid, especially in the seeker-sensitive and the church growth movement. Never say the word preach and never, never say the word sermon. You hear all kinds of other euphemisms for those things because preaching and sermon, people don't want to be preached to. They don't want sermons. You want to know why? It's because they're not Christians. That's why. And so, yes, we preach sermons. There's a little unusual detail found in Peter's sermon that could escape your notice very easily, but it's a key detail. And it's found in all of his preaching, by the way, both here and all of his other sermons. And that detail is that he almost never uses the second person pronoun, we. He doesn't say, we just need to come to faith in Christ. He doesn't say, we need to trust the Lord. He doesn't say, we need to be faithful together. No, he wastes no time and he verbally points a finger right at you. The implied you, verse 14, you men of Judea. The implied you in verse 14, all you who dwell in Jerusalem. The implied you in verse 22, you men of Israel. Acts 2, 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence. Now, in verse 32, he says, we are all witnesses, but he's only talking about the apostles. Verse 33, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And here's how he finishes his sermon. This Jesus whom you have crucified. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We hope you'll take a tract. And a, no. And they're convicted down to their sandals. And what do they do? They cry out, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of Holy, the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You, 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 you. It's like Peter is walking through the crowd with his finger pointing. He gets right up to you and just pokes you right in the forehead. He says, are you listening? I'll tell you what. One thing Satan would love for you is for you to stop believing that preaching is for you. 
but believe it's for others. You're spiritually dead in the water at that moment. And in the future, you'll probably be a thorn in the side of the church because you've begun seeing yourself in a different category from other people. You've lost the drive, you've lost the desire, you've lost the desperation. One of the blessings here at Grace in this past year has been so many new families coming. It's been a joy to us. And and what inspires me is your hunger for the word that's new, that's fresh. You can't get enough. Could I say this? We should all be like that. Why would we ever stop being hungry? In fact, Peter's so personal in his confrontation that unlike the modern sermon structure, they're talking back to him. They're saying, How do, what do we do right now? How do I apply this? They ask the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's principle here was not, well, I want you to ponder this for this week. I, I would like for you to think about this. He says, no, Repent. Change something. Do something different. It is a confrontation that is personal. There's a fourth element. Peter, like preaching, includes a content that is authoritative. A content that is authoritative. Now, logically, we could have started here, but my intention was to walk chronologically through the text. But in no time, Peter gets to the source of his authority, which is the written word of God. That's his authority. He explains the current event that these people are seeing as a partial fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2 in verses 16 through 21. We say partial fulfillment of this prophecy because the part about the pouring out of the Spirit has begun, but of course it will end with redemptive history, at the end of redemptive history, when we see things like the sun turn to darkness, the moon turn to blood, and so forth. But the content that is authoritative, that's at the source of Paul's command to preach the word, is what? It is the Bible. How anemic would it be if Paul said, preach your experience. Preach the news. Preach to be trendy. Preach the Centers for Disease Control. Preach morals from your grandmother and her two cats. No, by definition, the source that is anything other than Scripture is non-authoritative. And therefore, it's not preaching. This is what we mean by expositional preaching or expository preaching. It is to expose the truth of Scripture and explain it. Let me put it to you this way. The preacher is to expose what the Bible says because the Bible exposes what you really are. The Bible is what exposes you and it causes change. This is what the author of Hebrews says in this this shocking couple of verses about the Bible Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow, living, active, sharp, discerning, such that we're naked and exposed to God. Everything laid bare. That's what the Word of God is supposed to do. How would you feel if you were going into surgery to cut out a cancerous tumor and the surgeon said, well, I think we'll just leave all your clothes on. That's no, I need you to humiliate me so that you can cut out what must go. Preachers um, often shoot themselves and frankly their own churches in the foot when they appeal to any other authority than Scripture in some sort of misguided attempt to be more relatable, 
The preacher now makes himself the tool of change rather than the Bible, and it falls flat. There's no supernatural power to a nice guy giving advice. There's no power to that whatsoever. There is supernatural power to the invasive magnificence and impact of the authoritative word of God. Peter-like preaching includes a content that is authoritative. Fifth, Peter-like preaching includes a Christ who is proclaimed. A Christ who is proclaimed. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Oh, just in these three verses, what riches of Christ. This speaks of the miracles of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Why do preachers spend so much time focused on pleasing you when there's Christ to proclaim? How can the miracles of Christ ever get old? Have you ever seen someone walk on water? What are the implications of a man who can make bread from nothing? What power lies in a man who casts demons out with a word and with no effort whatsoever? What hope does Christ give when he demonstrates the power to heal by healing a quadriplegic and forgiving him of his sin? How about this? If Christ raises the dead, doesn't it follow then that he could raise you someday? How could the miracles ever get old? How could the death of Christ ever stop being the center of our thoughts, the center of our message? Does the external payment that Christ gave on the cross that lasts forever, does that ever become passe? Does that ever become yesterday's news? Does the atonement ever seem like it's old? Does the fact that there's no sting in death and that you're going to live forever become something we shouldn't think about anymore? And how can the resurrection of Christ be relegated to one Sunday per year when we think about Christ just a little bit more? Does the fact that our Savior conquered death ever become unreal to us? Does the fact that he left his grave behind, does that ever stop mesmerizing? Does the fact that his life guarantees our life ever stop giving us perfect hope In fact, the the proclamation of Christ is to be the central feature of our ministry. What's our verse at Grace Bible Church? Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And yes, the proclamation of Christ is interwoven certainly with all the word of Christ, the Bible. We warn everyone, we teach everyone. But listen, Much of the reason to proclaim Christ, to speak his name, to speak his attributes, to speak his mission, to speak of his grace, really the primary reason is just to bring him glory. Just to say his name, to say his title of the Lord Jesus Christ. That alone is reason enough. This was Paul's emphasis to the church at Corinth. When he was defending his previous ministry, he reminded them of his very intense, laser-beam-focused preaching intention. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The proclamation of Christ was the hallmark of Paul's preaching ministry. 
also of Peter's, of course. Peter, like preaching, includes a Christ who is proclaimed. Let me give you a sixth element. Peter, like preaching, includes a control that is thorough. A control that is thorough. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is a clear declaration that the death of Christ was a planned event by the wisdom of God. This asserts his thorough, sovereign control. Now, honestly, we're on easy ground here. I think most Christians really don't have trouble believing that the death of Christ was planned by God. Why do we not have trouble with this? Because the one verse that everybody knows says this. John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we can agree on that. But where does the division start? Well, because of pride, because of maybe wanting to feel like we're an integral part of our own salvation from sin, that we were able to bring something to the table, many, many fewer Christians believe that their salvation was planned by and initiated by and orchestrated by God in an act of thorough control and total sovereignty. But listen to Peter's preaching, verse 39 For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Did you catch that? Who will be saved? Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. The idea of human free will automatically infers that God calls everyone, but only some will respond. Now, there's certainly a general call to salvation, the external call given through the proclamation of the gospel, But the specific call, the internal call by God through the Holy Spirit is 100% effective. God says that he saves everyone he calls to himself. And this is, of course, the glorious doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Can I just read to you about the sovereignty of God for a moment? Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Colossians 1.17 That Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isaiah 45, beginning of verse 7 I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Listen to this. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Amazing. You're a little lump of clay going, I want to be saved. No, it doesn't work that way. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How about this one pertaining directly to our salvation? Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, meaning the message of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to the order. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How can a preacher preach trusting in a God who is not in control of salvation, but seems to be in control of most everything else? Preaching which denies the sovereignty of God in all things 
is not preaching. I'll tell you why. Because it denigrates the very character and power and nature of God and that which denigrates God cannot be called preaching. It's not. The sovereignty of God should be interwoven into the preacher's communication and you as listeners, you should be listening for the themes of power and dominion and control, a thorough and comprehensive total sovereignty because it's everywhere. It's everywhere in Scripture. Peter-like preaching includes a control that is thorough. Peter-like preaching includes a champion who is resurrected. It includes a champion who is resurrected. There's several elements of Peter-like preaching here are focused on Christ. I've already mentioned the resurrection, but it deserves its own category. Christ Jesus is the champion who conquered death. He proved it by rising from death himself, by raising others from the dead, and he'll prove it big time when he raises you from death. We all love to be reminded of the glorious truth of our own future. In 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Listen, the Christian can literally taunt death. You can mock death. For the little kids, you can do this. At death. I should point out that in this core of Peter's sermon from verses 14 to 36, 23 verses total, verses 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 31, and 32, 30% speak of the resurrection of Christ. And what's the result for you? Verse 26, my flesh also will dwell in hope. You cannot underestimate the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Peter-like preaching includes a champion who is resurrected. We'll do one more. Peter-like preaching includes a conqueror who is ascended. A conqueror who is ascended. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Only one who is victorious is exalted. And there are two major implications to the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. One of those those implications we'll examine next week, and that is that Jesus is awaiting his return to earth. We'll look at that next week. But the other implication is the current ministry of the ascended Jesus Christ, the ministry of intercession and mediation on your behalf. This is a key element of our soteriology, of our study of salvation. Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that that Christ is the one who could most rightly condemn us. he He could say, I had to die for that guy. He's so bad. But if Christ won't condemn you, then no one else can. He's at the right hand of the Father, praying for you, keeping your salvation secure. And he's infinitely devoted to this task 
Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why must Christ continue interceding for you? Very simply, because you keep sinning. And Revelation 12, verse 10 says that Satan accuses you day and night before God. And Satan doesn't have to lie about you. All he has to do is tell the truth. But Christ intercedes by declaring over and over again that when he said on the cross, it is finished, the task of paying for all of your sins, past, present, and future, was done. It was complete. It boggles my mind that modern evangelical preaching seems to often portray Jesus at the right hand of God, primarily concerned with your current happiness, primarily concerned with being the co-pilot of your life, being the source of your health and prosperity, of fulfilling your will for your life, and, and certainly of being personally fulfilled because you would condescend to pay attention to him. That is modern American evangelical Jesus. The terrible song, and I say that terrible so you don't write this down, by Hillsong Worship. I've talked about this one before. It's called, What a Beautiful Name. And it sounds beautiful. But it has one little verse that says, You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. You didn't want heaven without us. That is a statement of absolute total heresy. It pits Jesus against a heaven that doesn't have you in it. Oh, I get it. That's what Jesus meant when he prayed in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Was Jesus in all his glory just pining away, wishing heaven could be made complete by you? What are you bringing to heaven? Well, you are bringing some things, I suppose. Will you bless heaven with your lust, with your greed, with your murderous, hateful thoughts, with your secret sins, with your wicked tongue, with your lying, deceitful ways, with your selfishness, with your lack of self-control, with your laziness, with wasting hours and days and years of your life doing nothing of consequence? Yeah, that'll make heaven so much better. Listen, we remember and we relish and we cherish the ministry of the ascended Savior precisely because heaven does not need you. God does not need you. But His grace, His kindness is made manifest because Jesus prayed a prayer. Not because He wants you and doesn't want heaven without you, but because He is gracious. And this is the prayer He prayed in John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's you, may be with me where I am, not to fulfill him, but to fulfill us. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And by the ministry of intercession, the conqueror who has ascended, he keeps you in his hand until that day when he does a final transformation to prepare you to live in his glorious presence. Well, so far we've seen a communication that's heightened, a command that's direct, a confrontation that's personal, a content that's authoritative, a Christ who's proclaimed, a control that's thorough, a champion who is resurrected, and a conqueror who's ascended. Now, you might ask yourself, why are you preaching to me about what preaching is supposed to be? That's not my job, that's yours. 
Well, your view of preaching and how you live it out directly impacts the quality and effectiveness and fruitfulness of your Christian life. Can I remind you of something? 1 Corinthians 3 tells us in no uncertain terms that there will be Christians who go to heaven and yet receive no extra reward because their life was utterly wasted. What does that mean? What does a wasted life show? It shows that preaching did nothing for them. That they walked out the door for 70 years and made zero efforts. Now, at Grace Bible Church, we try to make certain you're well-fed spiritually, but the well-fed Christian can succumb to several blind spots. I'm going to give you three, and then we'll be done. Blind spot number one, no engagement. No engagement. I'm talking about mental engagement. There's less and less actual listening and just riding the coattails of previous times where there were lots and lots of listening. You could all identify times in your life where you were just voraciously hungry for the word of God. Can I tell you, get back to that. There's a second blind spot, no conviction. No conviction, the, the, the pricking of the spirit, the guiding of the heart, it begins to be replaced by a numb hearing of more and more knowledge that's just plastered over your closed heart. No conviction. Some of you, I've known for many years, and you tell me almost every week, man, you nailed me with that one. And some of you I've known for many years, and I've never heard that. No engagement, no conviction. Third blind spot, no action. No action. That the thought of proactively doing something different left long ago. The sermon is enjoyed, maybe even appreciated, But the follow-through of putting a new system in place, putting a new practice in place, of putting something into your life that needs to be changed, that's a law, that's something I did when I was really young in Christ and growing. Listen, I've seen this more times than I can count. The initially excited believer, hungry for the word, and they learn a lot, maybe even get discipled, go through all the discipleship we can, and then interest and engagement begins to wane. And you know what else begins to wane? Attendance. And then fellowship. And sometimes they just drift away. The ones that I could point to three, four, five years earlier were taking notes so fast that their hands were cramping. So my encouragement to you is get reattuned to making preaching a massive priority in your life. Let me state the blind spots in the positive. Engage. Get yourself mentally prepared. Listen for the word of God. Search Let it search and find your heart and your mind. Let the arrows hit home. Walk in here expecting to walk out wounded. And third, act. Find one thing you can do or one thing you can stop doing. Preaching should not end with the sermon. That's where it just starts. When you walk out the door is where the real work begins. Well, next week we'll finish up. We'll do the final eight elements of Peter-like preaching. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the glory of the scriptures, which are so uh, alive, they're living and active. We thank you, Lord. I pray that we would be listeners, that we would be those who heed the word of God, those who come to the gathering of the church eager to hear, to be convicted and to act. And we pray these things, all that you might be glorified so that we might be more like you to your glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name, amen.